Welcome to this week's episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers. In this conversation, I am speaking with Dr. Caitlin Boyle, who is a criminologist and professor from the University of South Carolina. We cover a variety of topics in our conversation, but importantly, we spend some time on a topic that is far more familiar to our day-to-day lives than I think we would want it to be, and also more than it has been in decades prior. Um, But that is specifically how we understand mass violence and looking at the complexity that gender plays and that the role of gender plays in how mass violence is committed, how it is perpetrated uh, in our society, in our communities. And so Certainly, it is a important topic, a heavy topic, as so many of these conversations end up being. Um, so take care of yourself, take care of each other, and enjoy this conversation of Coffee Chats with Researchers. Thank you so much for being here with me today. If you can, just give us a sense of who is in the room. So just introduce yourself and tell me a bit about the work that you do. Sure. Uh, My name is Kate Boyle. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of South Carolina. My undergraduate degrees are in sociology and women's studies, and then I've really focused my master's and PhD on social psychology in sociology. So my work and, and where I come from is really kind of an intersection of women's studies and feminist studies along with mental health, social psychology, and obviously sociology and criminology is where I come to That's how I come to criminology with that background. In these conversations, one of the most interesting things to hear from folks is just kind of like what led them to be in this world. Because we've been able to speak with folks who are criminologists, who are sociologists, who are clinical psychologists, who are community psychologists and sort of have a differentiation there as well as social workers. So can you speak a bit about what got you from that framework of schooling of sociology and women's studies and kind of that feminist perspective to the work that you do now and how those overlap with mm-hmm. each other? So typically, I when I am asked questions like this, I start with my first big sociology paper. I'll, and I'll fast forward a lot there. But in undergraduate, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to write. I loved writing. I thought I was going to be a journalist. But I took a class on racism, power, and privilege. And through that class, I learned a lot about a lot of things, but focused on our own research papers. And I focused on the things I was seeing around me, which was violence against women, specifically sexual assault on college campuses. And racism, power, and privilege is really a a nice class title to kind of encapsulate how I come to this story. It's very much focused on socialization, how social inequalities shape the context we're in, and then as well as the norms and socialization processes that harbor or facilitate environments in which women are sexually exploited or victimized. So that's where the very beginning of the story, and then I was told, you should get your PhD. And I said, I have no idea what that is, but let's figure this out. So I pursued from there social psychology, where I really delved even further into these kind of power dynamics. So the thing I love about social psychology is it really has a multi-level approach to understanding any kind of social issue or problem, where we understand there's this larger context like race and racism, sexism, economic inequalities, and so forth. And then we kind of narrow in and look at the more immediate environments, how those get imported into our interactions, 
how they become a part of our identities and shape ultimately the most private and micro of our human experience, which is our mental health, our identity, our emotions. With that kind of focus, that's where I come to mostly sexual violence is my research, is really understanding how more of these macro forces that I learned through typical sociology, so race, class, gender, sexual orientation, things like that, as well as those more immediate environments and how power dynamics really shape how sexual violence plays out, how people react to it or don't react to it, and ultimately how that affects things like mental health, anger, trauma, and PTSD, things like that. So it's really like that multi-level approach. Even though my quote-unquote dependent variable is often something like depression, it's really contextualized in those larger systems of inequalities. So can you speak to that a little bit more for folks who don't have a research lens to understand? Because I think it's such an important question that I realize like I haven't really talked to many people about yet is why it's important to understand someone's approach to the problem. You've kind of gotten that around saying that the race, power and privilege class kind of gives also a good framing for how you view the issue of sexual violence. Can you speak on why that is an important thing to understand about a person or their research agenda? And like you said, speaking to the dependent variable, that it's still contextualized in that aspect of your framework. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I think it's interesting. I love psychology and I'm trained in social psychology. And I think it's very interesting to me that I've given a talk, for instance, in a psychology program. And when they introduced me, they talked about how I'm a macro person. And then in sociology and most of criminology, although criminology is more interdisciplinary, it's I'm a very micro person. And that always kind of gives me a little laugh because it puts me on both sides. I'm right in the middle of both of those worlds. So one of the things that really brings me, obviously, there's a social problem and social activism side of doing this kind of work, but also the intellectual excitement and joy that I get is one of those things is looking at phenomenon that are considered a psychological phenomenon, like depression, like post-traumatic stress disorder, like imposter syndrome. That's a new thing that I'm working on and really understanding them in a sociological way. So taking a few steps back and even a few steps beyond, like I said, that environment in which those emotions or symptoms are fostered and reproduced and understand, well, how did we get to this point here? It's not very surprising that we see certain symptoms and certain experiences being clustered within certain social groups and the intersections of multiple social groups. So I think my training in sociology, and that's one thing that I honestly struggle a little bit with because there's obviously people doing work in these areas that cite social work are a big part of that. And I'm always, like I said, being seen as macro and then being seen as micro. And I'm really in that in-between space, which I'm moving beyond sexual violence, although I still do that work. And I just keep coming back to this almost cliche or catchphrase that violence is a reflection of inequality and it's a reinforcer of inequality. And trying to, again, bring that macro understanding of inequality into the individual's experiences. That's a really good byline for this episode. <laughs> that quote right there, because that's very encompassing and that resonates hard. It mm -hmm. just kind of sum up the reality of what we're dealing with, mm -hmm. that these issues, but specifically the perpetration of violence, the existence of violence in our society is not going to be reduced or addressed or eliminated without addressing inequality. And I think that was Elizabeth Armstrong, who said something very close to that in one of her articles. Of course, I have to cite my sources. It was 2017. Classic researcher. Yeah, I, I come with her seat. Yes, yeah, she wrote a piece that really, and I, and I loved her work, and it's very much of that 
contextual approach, sociological approach. I remember she said that it was like a light bulb went off. And now with this violence and injustice lecture series I'm doing, that's like in all my invitations, all my promotional materials. I keep emphasizing this fact that, for instance, looking at street harassment and violence against queer women of color. So we already have this group that is positioned and having sorts of experiences based on their identities or perceived identities, but it's reinforcing those inequalities. That's pretty much like my long game is showing how experiences like street harassment or sexual assault are mostly affecting people who experience multiple forms of oppression, but then it's impacting their depression, their identities, their mental health in ways that can lead to withdrawal and impacting their ability to succeed in the workforce and academia and things like that in a way that kind of becomes this vicious cycle. Not to be deterministic, that's not every case, but it has the potential to really add violence as a form of inequality Mm -hmm. is essentially what what I'm trying to argue. Yeah, I'm going to ask the probably very naive and like limited question of does that and obviously it sort of doesn't so it's a leading question but do we not have that information like does that readers kind of not do we not know that technically right I mean and I think there's the point to make or the asterisk to that comment for folks who are listening of just part of the importance of social research is also to allow for advocacy that at the end of the day we can't demonstrate the need without the baseline of fact, right? We might socially know something exists, but on a policy and a change kind of way, which is currently how our social welfare system works, like we need to be able to demonstrate that something exists. Clearly we don't, but in that way, like, do we not have data that demonstrates some of this? I mean, I think we do. I think that's what a lot of sociology, critical sociology does. And again, that's where all my degrees are. So I speak most closely to sociology. I think what gets lost is that there's more of the macro focus or the micro focus. And I think that's what with my training in social psych was very much about bridging those two pieces, because we know if we need that basic science. And that's really what I'm, like I said, intellectually curious and passionate about is raising and asking questions and looking for these micro mechanisms or processes that are linking structural inequality to individual outcomes. You really, I think, need that multi-level approach and we need psychologists and we need demographers and we need social policy and we can only do so much. I remember my professor told me once she was like, you can't do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You can't be doing all these fields and be specialized. And I think the knowledge is definitely out there and people are doing excellent work. Like I mentioned Elizabeth Armstrong is one example. Uh, Paige Sweet is another example of sociologists who are doing really, really good work in that area. Sometimes the things that we feel are obvious intersections, sometimes that data just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of times people are just like, well, don't we know that happened? Right. But like if we don't actually put the energy to study it and then to what I think you're speaking on around then coordinating the disciplines that approach it from different perspectives, we ultimately aren't going to end up with policies or advocacy spaces or support for agencies that are trying to address it. There's a certain element that we've got to demonstrate that things exist Mm -hmm. in order for them to be taken seriously. When I hear you speak on your long game is really setting that stage of, I've very clearly demonstrated for you that this is here. Mm -hmm. And these are all the different ways that we've illustrated how these inequalities come together to allow for violence to persist. And that inequality is actually, like you said, is under the umbrella of violence perpetration. And so for you, your hope with your scholarship is really allowing for that to exist so that hopefully 
others and maybe yourself mm-hmm. will build upon that into a more like, now what do we do with applicable? Yeah. 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 I think that's why I was excited to hear about what the centers do or the consortium is doing with dissemination. Because I think that's something that isn't necessarily taught, at least, again, speaking to sociology and criminology are, are my real fields. There's so much to learn and so much to focus on and specialize on that I think that dissemination piece is so important. The question you asked just came to mind. It's something that I'm working on now. And sometimes I feel like in social psychology, some of us will be like, a lot of the questions are, you do feel like there is an answer to it or it's common knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's when I tell students in sociology and criminology. You may think just because something is, quote unquote, common knowledge that it's true. And even if it is, how do we understand it and demonstrate that? My colleague, Kim Rogers at Dartmouth, we collected this data set looking at a multitude of very much these same questions that I've been approaching. And one of them is a very basic question. She and I have been talking about these things for years of street harassment, right? It's disempowering for women. How do we know that? Well, we guess it. We've experienced it. We see women experience it. You see a person shrink physically when they're experiencing and targeted by that. And not that there's not great research on that, but what we're looking at is, okay, well, how do we measure that disempowerment? How do we know it when we see it? And really, how does that negatively impact these larger processes that I said of reinforcing inequality? Well, if women are afraid to go outside, if women are afraid to speak up, if women are afraid to be in male-dominated spaces because of those disempowering experiences. And we have ways of measuring that through the theories we use, like affect control theory of how to understand like how that gets incorporated into essentially our sense of self, which then predicts how we behave, where we go, things like that. Yeah, it's street harassment's disempowering. It doesn't feel good, but really in that way of connecting the larger social inequalities, the very private experience of things like anxiety and how those get perpetuate inequality. It's those basic questions, I think, that sometimes are the most exciting to me as an academic, but also, like you said, very important in laying the foundation of that knowledge, especially in the you know social media world where we all have takes and opinions. And I see great stuff out there that has all their sites and it's very academic, but also well translated and communicated, which I want to work towards being able to do that better. But yeah, just those basic questions underlying some assumptions, I think, is really important to work, especially in the realm of things as critical as violence. Yeah, absolutely. So you've touched a bit on a couple of things, but can you speak to kind of what you do have going on now? So it sounds mm-hmm. like you had mentioned imposter syndrome and then also mm-hmm. kind of the street harassment work. Can you speak to current projects or current research that you're conducting? Sure. So this is, I feel like it's an exciting time in my career where I've really wrapped up a lot of the things that I set out to do. And I'm looking beyond I've done a lot of like campus sexual assault stuff and sexual violence research. And I'm really trying to, again, take a step back because I've really also been very interested in coercion and more of these power-laden areas that are not quite always criminal, quote unquote, not necessarily illegal, but have these power-laden inequality factors going on. Kind of what I'm doing with this new data set that I collected with Dr. Rogers, where we're trying to understand using ethic control theory, this theory that we use to understand those micro mechanisms that link larger inequalities to private experiences of mental health and identity. So we're looking at that in a number of ways in terms of microaggressions, experiences of everyday discrimination, street harassment on the side of people who are experiencing and being targeted with those things. But on the other hand, we're also very interested in, well, what happens to the people who are engaging in those criminal or deviant aggressive behaviors and understanding how that affects their feelings of worth and potency by enacting street harassment and racist behaviors. 
we're trying to, much more an expert on the first side of that, I have to say, but speaking for myself, but we're really trying to understand both sides of that coin, like that street harassment project. I never come up with the title of a paper before I write it, but I was like, both sides of the street, you know, and uh. <laughs> working on the other side of the, the colon, but um, understanding how potency is affected by both enacting harassment and experiencing harassment. The one time I came up with a clever title, it's ready to go. I'm like... <laughs> I forget what was after the colon, but it, it was good. It was really good. <laughs> and I have played a lot with the data and it's testing theories that, that have a lot of support. So it's just our way of framing it. So I have a good feeling about that awesome. paper that I'll probably write in two years. And the imposter syndrome, I'm working on that with Letitia Brown and Jennifer Turner, two professors that they're not professors, but I met at Virginia Tech when I was there. And what we're interested in there is also looking at microaggressions, who we know are most likely to be targeted by them, especially at the intersection. So we're looking particularly at the experiences of women of color. And this is PhD students in the sample, how they have higher levels of microaggression experiences than, than other groups and how those translate into imposter syndrome. So imposter syndrome is another example like depression to me that we think of it as an individual level problem with individual level solutions. But when we actually look at it, it's things like racism, classism, sexism, and how that is being brought into our local context of graduate school in this case and shaping feelings like, do I belong here or am I good enough? These things that we consider, yeah, to an extent, they're a universal experience for academics, but it's not affecting everyone at the same level. So that's one thing. And then, like I said, I'm kind of getting into a lot of new stuff and I am delving more deeply, kind of full circle to what I was working on as an undergraduate is really understanding masculinity and violent contexts, particularly looking at gun violence. I had a student, Maria Scaptura at Virginia Tech, and she said, I want to write this paper on mass shootings. And I was very focused on sexual assault and mental health. And I was like, well, I'll support you 100%. This is going to be heavy. This is going to be a lot. And now that we've been working together on it, it's just taken on a mind of its own. We have two papers on that. We're working on several others. So yeah, I feel like when I first came on the job market, I had a very coherent, this is who I am. Yeah. And now that I'm kind of diversifying, I guess, the different products I'm focusing on. But this interview actually helped remind me of where it all comes back to, that larger question about social inequality. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear you speak more on masculinity and gun violence and kind of what looking at why understanding the masculinity element of that. So this is something that has, I think the first time I saw it was Jackson Katz talking about masculinities and I'm blanking on the exact name of his top guy. That's it. I watched that as an undergraduate, I think. And that was the first time I really saw. And this is, you know, I was an early teen when Columbine happened. So the focus was more there in his earlier documentaries, Tough Guys. So this is definitely not an original thought, but it's something that one of the arguments he makes critiques the media that everyone's saying, oh, kids are violent. Kids are doing this. Kids are doing that. And then you actually look at who's committing these acts. And now, terrifyingly so, we have so many more cases as so much more evidence of this is that they're boys and men. So I think it's a multifaceted problem. It's another question that we need people from every field, I think, working on this problem. And the way that Maria and I and some work that Kim and I have talked about is really trying to understand it from a threat or strain perspective of how being mistreated, there's an expectation of certain things, certain markers of manhood that, that boys and men should achieve, relationships, 
good job, income, having a family. And when those things get threatened is when we see some cases of violent enactment of these attempts at dominance and control over large groups of people. And I don't think it's an accident that a lot of these cases, and not speaking to what happened in Texas yesterday, because I know nothing about it at this point, other than the things that the public know. So it doesn't, I can't say that it speaks to every single case and explains everything, but it's one piece of the puzzle of trying to understand what went wrong for this individual that shaped either their identity or their emotional states in ways that made them more conducive to enacting violence and large-scale violence. We're not talking about schoolyard fights. That's still violence and that's a problem. But what is it about that turning point where everyone becomes an enemy and all these people around me become an enemy that needs to be either taken out or or some other um, language that's used as opposed to, well, this one person did me wrong. I want to fight them or something like that. So there's a lot of folks working on these questions. And I think psych, crim, soch, across the board. And this is just the one little piece that I'm focused on. I mean, the structure of what you just spoke on is even kind of, as you mentioned, both I guess maybe on a surface, they're in different areas. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we come back to the same idea, the same message of understanding and addressing the impacts of inequalities, as well as really being able to understand the factors that go into the perpetration of violence Mm -hmm. and and being able to understand that more from a system's perspective. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the work that you're doing, though, even to that point, you've been in the CL for a little while now and got to see a lot of the different ways that disciplines approach these areas. What do you see as some of the major gaps in the work or areas that lack a lot of attention? Mm-hmm. People have been talking about this, like I said, for, gosh, what was the first Tough Guys? Probably in the 90s, I think. So people have been talking for a long time about the role that gender plays in mass violence. And I think something that I've been working on and I've gotten a few little local grants and I've been doing some writing on and I'm really trying to establish this idea of gender-based mass violence because it's not just, oh, people are socialized, men are socialized to be this way. It's so much more complicated and complex and multi-layered than that. And there's just so many different ways that gender play a role in either who is targeted, why they're targeted, the backstory of what led up to that, gender norms playing a role and why this is more likely to be men. So I think there's so much more work to be done. And again, this is rather new for me getting back into this and looking at mass violence just the past few years. So I think there's a lot of really, really great work in that area. I think there still needs to be more. And just having written enough and gotten enough reviews and peer reviews and critiques that are totally valid, they'll ask me, okay, well, you see these things in survey data, for instance, of how people may be more likely to be fantasizing about enacting mass violence because they've experienced these strains or these stress But there's such a huge gap between the people who might think about it or fantasize about it and the people who actually do it. And that's all types of violence. But especially when we talk about mass violence, because they're so, I mean, most people don't want to believe it, but they are so rare compared to other types of violence. Right. So I think there's some really great work that's been done over the years looking at, okay, well, it's the access to firearms. It's the planning stage. If you're actually planning it and you have the firearms and you're telling people about it or documenting it. So that's not at all what I study, but I think stringing these all together, like I would love to do a special issue of a criminology journal of people who are looking at all these different pieces. Yeah. So yeah, it's that link between who thinks about it, who fantasizes about it, who wants to do it. Yeah. And then who actually plans to do it and of those who actually do it. And so being able to understand that also from your perspective, 
fills in some needed understanding around how we can actually begin to address that action versus only being on the reactionary side or being able to differentiate or understand what moves someone from contemplation to action or from the fantasy that might be rooted in something very different Mm -hmm. than what actually motivates someone to take what could ultimately be a much more deadly step. Exactly. Yeah. I think that work is so needed. And I also think that's what gets frustrating as people who study, especially if you're looking at like survey data, you're not looking at shooters, you're looking at just a general sample. When I get those critiques, I'm like, absolutely, we need that work. But I'm also not trying to predict who will do it. Sure. It's more trying to understand these larger social processes that may enable, facilitate. So it's it's not getting us closer to predicting at all. What are we going to say? Anyone who has stress? No, everyone has stress. Sure. I mean, and at the end of the day, and I'm going to say this and you may or may not agree, but that the broad we much prefer to look at problems from an individual Mm -hmm. perspective and to place responsibility and onus on individual action rather than understanding that at the end of the day, from a systems perspective, we end up with the world that we are structured to end up with. I'm not surprised that there are folks who would want the, how do we predict this? Right. A thousand percent. I get it. Trust me. I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> because we want to say, oh, well, I can pinpoint the bad apple, the right. bad person, mm-hmm. and I can remove them or treat them in some way and this won't happen. Right. Rather than saying maybe there's structural issues that allow this space that if those were addressed, mm-hmm. the possibility for someone to even be in that place when we, if not totally removed, significantly diminished, allowing for better interventions on the other end. But systems level change is obviously much longer and harder. And so it's not (laughs) what we necessarily are drawn toward. Mm -hmm. Plus, conceptually, I think it's harder for people to wrap their heads around the Oh, absolutely. Well, that's just thinking of racism. It's so much easier for someone to see an overtly violent racist act, although some people can still look past it or deny it. Or, but that's still easier than understanding how we are in this position in the first place, because that requires history and sociology and a lot bigger of a conversation. But people want to focus on completely understandably so on those most extreme, like what happened in Buffalo, these extreme violent racist acts. It's a lot harder to wrap that all up in the context of everything from voter suppression to redlining to all these other issues that are related to perpetuating racism or any kind of inequality in our country. And at the end of the day, for our brains, sort of biological, yeah, don't want to think that the world is anything different than exactly yeah. how we process it in front of us. But the idea that there's something more abstract and systemic happening asks us to think outside of the idea that what we see might not be exactly as it is laid out in front of us, that there could be other factors coming into play. And I think that's something that I often talk to my students about and I think is much more, again, in the social psychology realm. And I'm not an expert on cognition and things like that by any means. But I try to kind of normalize and help them understand that the way that people react to violence and to crime, even if it's an unhelpful way, it doesn't mean that a conscious desire, for instance, to victim blame. 
I tell them, I said, yes, there are those people out there who will really viciously attack victims because they want to. But then there's the vast majority of people who just don't know how to receive a disclosure of violence. So they may not think that they're victim blaming at any way, but because they don't have those, it's a skill. That's why we have social workers and therapists. Right. So I, I try to normalize those kind of things. And I say that about violence, too. I say we want to live in a world that is safe and that makes sense and there's order and there's structure to it. And then when there's things like mass violence, a lot of mass violence incidents are at homes, but you don't really hear about those as much. They're more domestic violence related. But these ones that happen in places that we as a society agreed is a place where we can be safe and happy and foster education and worship and all these other issues, it really is why we talk about those more. So even though I'm more interested actually in those more intimate partner violence related mass homicides, I'm not saying, oh, you're wrong for focusing on what happens at schools or what happens at concert. Because of course, the brain says, hold on, I have to pay attention to this because that's not supposed to happen here. Right. So I think that's where like that meaning making social psychology really comes into play, probably even more in my teaching than in my own research in terms of just how we receive violent stories and media. Yeah. I know the question was censored around sort of gaps in the work, but I wonder if you can elaborate too on the work you're doing with your fellow researchers on the microaggressions and kind of Mm -hmm. understanding how that impacts your own individual identity. Why is that, I guess, an area that you think the field is also lacking in that way? So thinking about gaps from that perspective too. I love interdisciplinary work and I love, like I said, looking at a psychological phenomenon through a sociological lens. So it's definitely like there's incredible research on microaggressions and it's critical. It's, it focuses on structure. It focuses on these larger issues of inequality. So I definitely don't think there's a lack of that work. I think it's more where my interest is understanding the theoretical processes that translate a microaggression, a slight, something that may not even be intentional how that becomes incorporated into your sense of self in ways that ultimately harm your ability to succeed and live the life that you want to lead. I have to be careful that language not, oh, because then you can't succeed and, and then be active in the workplace. And that's really not my concern from like a capitalist lens. It's more if you want to get your PhD and you want to be a professor or you want to be a lawyer or you want to do these things that are important to you, how are the environments that you're in preventing you from succeeding in that way? Either from succeeding at all because you drop out, you leave, you're pushed out due to kind of hostile climates and encounters you've had, or do you make it? And then you pull apart and you burn out within yeah. a year. Yeah. My interest is understanding where the field, where you'd want to see the field head mm-hmm. um, or the direction you'd want it to take in terms of research that's prioritized, questions that are prioritized from both researchers and just funding agencies, the folks who are kind of driving the bus a bit around what those top questions are mm-hmm. um, as we move forward. You know, my question and interest was in hearing a bit more where understanding those environmental influences fits in that work. And Mm -hmm. Lakata, as you explained, that if we want to see more equitable representation from all people, specifically people of color, specifically women of color, that there is a need to understand the environmental Uh, I'm not sure the right word except for just impact, but how those things are then shaping the ability to succeed Mm -hmm. in their own pathways, careers, just like desires to be in the type of work that they want. But again, understanding it from a more structural perspective 
rather than understanding it from a like, oh, why does this person choose? You should go to therapy or I mean, therapy is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But instead of saying that or here's tips how to combat your imposter syndrome, which we always have to worry about those individual solutions in the immediate because there's people who are hurting and the people who are struggling. So I've also done work on sexual harassment. So microaggressions, gender harassment, any of these issues, people are being told you're not welcome here or you don't belong here or you don't deserve to be here. And then we turn around and ask ourselves, and that works for class too. I mean, people who are come from like economically disadvantaged backgrounds where those they're experiencing microaggressions too in ways that you're telling people they don't belong. And then you're like, why don't you feel like you belong? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And then here are tips to manage the fact that you don't belong. Exactly. Yeah. And then campuses, unfortunately, are kind of notorious for not having enough mental health resources. And graduate students tend to be a little bit more isolated from those types of resources in the first place. I mean, I keep talking about grad students because that's where yeah. I collected a bunch of data in the past few years. So trying to understand how we could get beyond that individual solution, which we also need, but linking it back to how did we get here in the first place place. In the similar line of thinking, my wrap-up question for mm-hmm. folks is always the one of if you had unrestricted dollars, if someone randomly was just like, I want to fund your work, do whatever you want to do with it. There's no dream. <laughs> There's no restriction. No kind of like, yeah, you have to deliver these these outcomes. Is it? What would you put it toward? What would you want to see happen? I probably have a clearer answer five years ago, but like I said, now that I've gone into so many different directions in terms of empirical topics, it's a little bit harder. But what my gut reaction to that is hire a ton of postdocs from different fields, uh, psychology, social work, sociology, criminology, criminal justice, because again, they have very clear systems. That's really a lot of what that work is, is looking at the systems in depth in order to look at some of these questions like mass violence. So it's not high in the sky, but I am trying to get my lecture series to be turned into a working group because there's people at the University of South Carolina. I showed up there and like within two weeks, I had emails from multiple people in different fields. Oh, you study sexual violence? I do too. We should meet. And I started kind of talking with those folks. And we haven't applied for any grants or done any concrete research yet, especially COVID kind of ruined our regular coffee chats. Yeah. But trying to get that interdisciplinary group together. I didn't mention public policy. I mean, public health, all these different fields that have a different perspective. And so that's the dream. And I just remember hearing in grad school, like you really need to have this interdisciplinary approach with some of these funders from a practical sense, but from a knowledge building sense. You need to have the interdisciplinarity to understand the different facets because we're all very much specialized. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would probably start a consortium that was very interdisciplinary in nature. And we would focus on specific questions, primarily interpersonal violence. But a piece of that, again, is this mass violence as the gendered processes and elements that are that are inherent in a lot of these cases. Right. Can you talk about just, again, more of a clarity question around moving from a lecture series to a working group for those who don't necessarily understand the academic differentiation and sort of why that then notes a movement forward for kind of like accessibility. Mm-hmm. This will be our third lecture series and we've had folks, we had two the first year, three last year, hoping to do three this year. Virtual has really opened up where we're asking several international scholars this fall. So speaking to, for an academic, but more of a general audience, really, we invite community members and people all over campus to discuss their specific research. 
So I want to keep that going as a part of this working group, but also have more regular meetings from people from different disciplines at the university who are doing work so that we can build networks of people that we could apply for grants with, people that may, you know, we get so siloed. And I say, I really want to write. That's why I hesitate to say, what are the holes in the field? So I'm like, I'm not even ready to really make that argument. But we could say, oh, I really want to do this work. And et cetera. And this is what I'm focused on. And they could say, actually, there's this scholar. It's not what exactly what you want. Yeah. But they wrote two books that could really inform what you did. Because we're just, I guess I'm that dork who would take classes forever. And I think a lot of us are. Just continue to learn. And we're all specialized. So being able to get past that with the working group is a practical sense. And that, oh, now you know this professor who could be on your committee. Because I would want grad students involved. Or we could apply for a grant together. We can get a reviewer for something. But it's really about, I think we would be presenting our own research in a more workshop mode. And as well as just an informal support. I guess somewhat formal, but a form of support because all areas of research could be difficult. But the people who are studying interpersonal violence, we ask a lot of the similar questions. We just look at them differently. And yeah. um, I think we kind of get it. Even if you're a psychologist or uh, women's studies or different fields, we still know what some of those problems are and what some of those issues are. So I'm really excited. I'm hoping by next spring we'll start getting those meetings started. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much. I Thank you. enjoyed being able to talk to you. I hope that we'll be able to connect in the future and just hear more about how your work is going. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers. You can always find more of these coffee chats on our website, which is vawconsortium.rutgers.edu. And of course, you can always reach out to us via social media or via email. We are always happy to hear from you with your thoughts, your questions, your feedback, or just generally to give us a hello. As always, stay curious, ask questions, drink coffee, and we will see you for our next episode of Coffee Chats with Researchers.